Welcome to The Current, a podcast produced by We Stand for Energy. We Stand for Energy is a community that supports a reliable, affordable, and sustainable energy future for everyone, and is a project of EEI, the National Trade Association representing U.S. investor-owned electric companies. My name is Brad Vietor, Vice President of External Affairs at EEI, and I'm your host. Welcome back, everybody. Thanks so much for giving us some time today. We're going to dig in a little bit to this infrastructure package. We're going to talk about reconciliation and discuss what it means for the electric industry. And to do that, I've invited a real expert uh, on Capitol Hill, somebody with a ton of experience on the Senate side, understands their sometimes peculiar rules. And that is Bob Russell. And he is a partner at the Simmons Russell Group here in Washington, D.C. He's a former chief of staff for Democratic Senator Mark Pryor. Bob, thanks for giving us a little bit of time today. Well, uh, thanks for having me, Brad. It's a pleasure to be. I don't think everybody understands, but we're actually in studio for the first time for the taping of this. So yeah, I'm excited to be here. You know, it's good to see people in real life again. Uh, I feel like it's short-lived, but looking forward to the discussion. I know there's a number of things that that I'd like to get into. I certainly want to understand what the heck reconciliation is at some point later on, but really the purpose and focus of this conversation is this monumental infrastructure package that's in play that the Senate has already passed, that the House is figuring out what to do with. And we were having a conversation a couple days ago, And you were talking to me about how unique it was that this infrastructure bill came together. Could you share the background of how this whole infrastructure package came together? Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's right. I think it's a unique way that this package came together. And it is, for anybody that loves politics, this is going to be a fun exercise. Infrastructure has been on the plate for every president since George W. Bush, and no one could get it across the line. And generally, the way legislation moves is there's an initiative from the White House to move a particular policy matter. It is taken up by the Senate and the House committee chairman and the leaders, and it generally is a leadership exercise. And that's not the way this one came together. This one actually came together because you have that group that plays more in the middle on the Democrat and the Republican side and determined, basically, what is the least common denominator that we can agree on on infrastructure, and then let's try to figure out what the greatest common denominator is. And that's a process that if you look at it, everybody sees the 10-week intensive negotiation that was going on. This really started with relationships that were being built over the last several years, particularly by Senator Manchin, who would make sure that Democrats and Republicans were having dinner and has been doing that for a long time. And this is kind of an outgrowth from that. So it's been fun to watch and it's unusual in the way that it came together. So who are those players? When you talk about those centrists, who are they? And a little bit of how they attack this problem, how they think about this problem, because I think that's pretty material into the package that we got. The larger group is comprised of 22 senators, 11 Democrats, 11 Republicans, and they range from Mitt Romney on the Republican side to Dick Durbin on the Democrat side. So Mm -hmm. you've got folks that are traditionally seen as conservative and folks that are traditionally seen as progressive or liberal. But then you also have a lot of the ones that played in the middle. But the way this particular legislation came about is you had five Democrats and five Republicans who came out with a 10-member working group. And 
really did the lion's share of the legwork to get it across the line. You had Kirsten Sinema who led it on the Democrat side. You had Senator Portman on the Republican side that led the effort. Then you also had on the Democrat side John Tester from Montana, Joe Manchin from West Virginia, Senator Shaheen from New Hampshire, and Mark Warner from Virginia. On the Republican side, you had Mitt Romney as I discussed, Senator Portman. Portman really provided a lot of leadership, but it was everyone that had an integral part of it. Senator Murkowski from Alaska, Senator Collins from Maine, and then Senator Cassidy from Louisiana. Those were the 10 senators that really were the backbone to getting this across the finish line. Hmm. That's fascinating. We'll sort of have to see what happens with this bill. The time of recording, the, the thing hasn't passed, and we're looking at an end of September date. But this approach, this will be a chapter in the Biden book, or this will be a part of the history of the Senate and how things move. So fascinating to watch. It's also something that gives those of us that spend more of our life in the middle a little bit of hope to thinking that there's actually a path forward to getting things done, and it has to do with decentralization. So I do think that at some point during this, for those 10 senators in particular, but for even for that larger group, that to a large degree, it became about actually getting something done as opposed to not getting something done. And that mm-hmm. was a big initiative. I think that these members were wanting to show that the institution's not broke, that it's just that uh, there's been a lot of partisanship. And I think that that was a big reason that we're finally seeing this thing move. And it, it has moved through the Senate, passed the Senate August the 10th. It got much more than just the 10 votes that were needed. It got 19 Republicans to vote for it. And that, to me, is an indication of just how solid this effort was. Well, let's talk about what's in it. EEI members, the investor and electric companies, have been paying attention, as have all of your clients. I know you represent people from all over the place. So I'm going to have you just focus your attention on what the investor-owned electric companies get out of this. What do you think are the top-line things in this infrastructure pack? Yeah, let me first say that you know I didn't hear a lot of criticism about the things that are in the bill. The pay-fors were a little different situation. And anytime you're trying to figure out who's going to pay and how something's going to be paid for, it's always a little bit harder to address. But the way this thing was initially structured, these are all generally brick and mortar projects that they're looking at. So it's something you would traditionally think of as infrastructure. And I think that was important to the way this thing was initially defined. But for our members, there are a host of things. Remember, the whole bill is $1.2 trillion. And some of these numbers are larger than we've seen devoted to some of these spaces in a very long time, if ever. But there are some headlines that I think that we should take note of. Cybersecurity. There is a program that's going to be set up in DOE for critical electric infrastructure. We all know what an issue that is in the industry, and the cyber money is also going to be provided for a lot of other sectors, but there's a big chunk of it that's going to go to DOE. Carbon capture. I want to say that there's close to $9 billion, $8.5 billion mm-hmm. set aside for carbon capture utilization and storage. That was probably a larger figure than we thought would have been in there, and that was a big deal, particularly for Senator Murkowski and Senator Manchin, who have worked on that issue in our committee. There's some money set aside, about $8 billion for hydrogen. There's a large amount of money set aside for hydropower. All of these tend to be in the $8 billion range. EV infrastructure, there's $7.5 billion that's set aside for that. 
But the things that uniquely matter is there was an additional add-on for LIHEAP. I want to say that's about a half a billion dollars for LIHEAP that was included in these monies. And some other things like streamlining the NEPA process, which has been under scrutiny and permitting issues. I'm not sure how that's actually going to work, and I'm not sure what is unfunded and what is already appropriated money out of all of this. We're trying to figure that out now. But then the other big ticket item that was in this is there's almost $43, $44 billion set aside for broadband. And so I think that that's going to provide a lot of access that the member companies hopefully will be able to see a gain out of. All right. So... The bill went over to the House over the last few weeks. There was a uh, bit of a stare down between the Speaker and some other members of our caucus. Some of the moderates were wanting to just push this infrastructure package, and then the Speaker and some of the more progressives were, as well as the Biden administration, talking about wanting to do this reconciliation process and tying those two things together. So before we dig into that, can you demystify for a simple man from East Texas like me what on earth reconciliation is and how it works? and just explain that whole concept? Well, I'm not going to explain the whole concept because I don't understand the whole concept. And as a chief of staff in the Senate, I left that to the parliamentarian and the floor members. But, you know, look, the way I think about reconciliation, everyone thinks that it's this process that is outside the norm. It's really not. What it is, is it allows legislation for revenue, tax, and spending to pass with a majority vote. Okay. And the reason that's important is because that's nothing passes with a majority vote in the Senate. So reconciliation really doesn't mean anything in the House because everything passes with a majority in the vote, or almost everything passes with a majority vote. So the implication reconciliation has is on the Senate side. And so in those circumstances where you're dealing with the budget, you have a couple of bites at the apple. This is not something that you can employ whenever the party in power wants to employ it. You can only do it after following. Uh, budget resolution. So we've seen that there's two bites at that apple this year. Before the Senate left for its August recess, it passed the $3.5 trillion budget resolution. But that doesn't mean that that's what's going to ultimately pass with regard to where we are. So we can get into the politics on that. But the way I think about it is, is reconciliation in a very limited, narrow way allows for votes in the Senate to pass by a simple majority. And then that way, you can actually accomplish something on the budget without having to go through the 60-vote threshold. Okay. That makes some sense. So more or less, the speaker was saying, look, we're going to work on this infrastructure deal, but we've got other work to do. And the only way we're going to get that other work done within that, whatever that universe of $3.6 trillion in the budget is, is if we pass this reconciliation bill. Yeah, there's been a lot of politics that have played out over this and a lot yet to be played out. But one of the things that I think she was required to do with regard to the budget passing is she had to guarantee that there was going to be a separate vote on the bipartisan infrastructure. And so she set a date to do that. I think it's September 20, 27th. Maybe? 7th. Yeah. Uh, that sounds about right. So she said she'd bring it up by then. There's one thing we know about Speaker Pelosi is never, never underestimate what she can accomplish. And the politics in the House are a little bit different than they are in the Senate. As we're dealing with in the Senate, she has a, it's the politics of the tight majority. She can't lose votes. And this is a Democratic-driven process, so she has to placate all aspects of the caucus. So, yeah, a lot of politics yet to be played, but I anticipate that we're going to see the House take up the infrastructure bill and pass it. 
I think that's where it'll be. Reconciliation is a much more difficult needle to thread. When you get 69 votes in the Senate, that's a strong vote. And you saw that, and the White House was engaged in this the entire way. That's the other thing is there were people that were directly involved in the negotiation for the White House and were critical to making sure that the commitments to get the infrastructure bill were done. And the day after it passed the Senate, the president was out touting it around the country. So obviously it's something they want. Of course, the White House wants the larger reconciliation bill, but this seems to be something that you can get on the ground at least by the end of September. So I think that's probably how that'll play out. Help me figure out then what you think the timeline is on the reconciliation bill over in the House. Do you think that's just something that gets booted into October or? Yeah, it look, no one knows. It is a huge question on how it gets done. As I said earlier, just because a $3.5 trillion budget resolution passed, I would not anticipate that reconciliation will be on that order at all. For the moderates, it's going to have to be much smaller. And so you're still going to look to those same senators and the same congressmen and members of Congress that have looked at this and have been talking about what they can live with. Those are still going to influence it. The progressives want this. $3.5 trillion. The moderates want something much, much less than that. So maybe I'll be surprised. I will tell you this. I know that the committee process in the House is already marking up legislation, and we'll be marking up the reconciliation instructions, and we'll be doing so for the first couple of weeks in September. The Senate committees have been working hard to write reconciliation instructions ever since it went into recess break. So all committees of jurisdiction are engaged, but I do think that it's likely to slip into October. October, and then see ultimately where it goes. It's also going to be really one of these things that's going to be held close to the vest Mm -hmm. because it's something that everyone's going to have to agree on. And once you start floating it around out there what it is, it becomes a lot harder to get the political consensus for it. Seeing all the work that those moderate senators did to come together, the 69 votes they received, that's a pretty strong message. Do you expect that the House is going to take the direction from the Senate, or do you think there are going to be a number of substantive changes that we're dealing with in conference? I don't think there'll be a conference. I mean, never say never in this town. I think there's still politics to be played, Mm -hmm. but I do think that what the Senate passed is what it will look like, because that was the initially hard needle to thread. White House, Democrats, and the Senate, Republicans in the Senate. Remember, you, you got every Democrat in the Senate to vote for this. So, I do think that it'll be very similar, if not the exact same, to pass the House. But there's still, like I said, a lot of politics that have to be played out. And I'm not sure exactly what the Speaker has to do to get those votes and then what she has to do to also get some assurance on reconciliation. And, And then you layer all of that with, remember, this happened August 10th. Now, since August 10th, the administration's had a tough month. with Afghanistan, with the rise of the Delta strain. So politics has a funny way of changing the situation. That's why it's members that pass the bipartisan infrastructure bill know to get this thing across the finish line. you got to do it sooner than later. It never works well to have legislation laying out for a long time. You hit on it. One of the things I've been hearing is how important a win is for this administration right now. I wonder if the $3.5 $3.5 trillion ends up being the size of the whole thing, inclusive of infrastructure, because there are few more political animals than the Speaker of the House, and so she knows where things are, and the deal-making will be fun to watch. Never, ever bet against Nancy Pelosi. She does it better than anyone, certainly, I've ever witnessed, and probably as well as anyone's ever done that job. Your analysis of that could be 100% correct. 
I do think the administration is looking forward to talking about good things, and the infrastructure is ready to be done. So I think that's a hard argument to bypass in trying to get the harder thing done first. Sounds right to me, and I know on the EEI member side, they're ready to figure out how to put that capital at work to combine it with other private capital so we can really just figure out how to move on, masks on or not. Well, thanks, Bob. I appreciate you joining me today, and we'll have you back soon. Loved it. Thanks for having me. Good to see you. You too. Thanks, Bob. We hope you found this to be an informative 15 minutes, and we look forward to bringing you additional expert insights on energy policy. To learn more about EEI and the electric power industry, visit www.eei.org. You can subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts by searching for The Current and We Stand for Energy.